I have entitled the message, Sickness for the Glory of God. I love the title all by itself. It's just so suggestive. And it comes to us really from verse 4 of John 11. If you look at verse 4, this is the account, you know, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And he hears about it all. And in verse 4, when Jesus heard that, that he was sick, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I just love that statement. This sickness. If you just made a little leap there, this sickness and then just leaped over. This sickness is, go a few words, for the glory of God. This sickness is for the glory of God. I just love that. In one of the earlier chapters, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Who sinned that this man was born blind? And he said, Nobody sinned. This blindness is for the glory of God. And we studied all of that in detail. As we come to John 11, we've been journeying many chapters and we now come to a turning point. We come to a transition You go chapter 1 through chapter 10, running through the Gospel of John, and you hit chapter 11 and 12, and they're pivotal. And it's a transition time in chapters 11 and 12. And then as you get to 13 and on to the end, Jesus is right up under the shadow of the cross. He is even there as we get to this point. As we come here, I want to give you the outline of where we're going, then we'll let the text unfold as we go through it. But let me give you the outline for this time and the next time. In this chapter, we have here what I would call the positioning of the miracle, which all by itself is a message. Then we have the preparation for the miracle, when the sisters send the note. Then we have the arrival for the miracle, and what a study that is all by itself. Then the miracle itself, and then the results. So those five things are the issues of the chapter. To begin with, I want to take some time with the positioning of the chapter and the miracle because it is so instructive. The positioning here is solely to bring glory to Jesus Christ. If you understand what's been happening and you've been with us in the Gospel of John and especially recently, the Jews as he went along, it was one thing in the beginning to see him turn the water into wine at a wedding. That was one thing. It was one thing to see him preach a few things, but as time went by, and as he headquartered himself for the most part in the Galilean area, as he headquartered himself there and he would return up to Jerusalem at different points, what you find is that as it all unfolds is that the Jews, as they're referred to in the Gospel of John, which basically is a reference to the religious leaders in this Gospel, They become more and more hardened and they become more and more vicious, more and more full of hate and more and more bent on killing him. So that by the time we get to chapter 10 and then on into 11, we come to the full open public ministry of Jesus being over. It ends at the end of chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 31, we read, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, and he said, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Then in verse 39, Therefore they sought again to seize him. But he escaped out of their hand, and he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first, back down the hill, down to Jericho, and there he stayed. And it's effectively those three words, there he stayed, is almost um, an underlining summary of the fact that he has now ended his full public ministry, and there he stays. That is over, and that is tragic. But what he does from here is he begins to focus on the seclusion of his own inner circle. He really turns away from the public, as it were, now to focus on the men that he is going to leave the whole operation with when he's gone. Everything when Christ dies and raises from the dead and goes back to heaven, everything basically rests in their hands, these men he's been training. So now he turns to focus on them. Israel had had their opportunity. You could say they had their day of opportunity. The sun has set and the night has come. 
And as we begin chapter 11, we are now coming under the shadow of the cross. It begins to loom large in his thinking and in his actions and in his messages. And so he focuses more and more on those who are close to him. Chapter 11 then moves us from what you could say the rejection of Jesus Christ to his glory. And I I just love the term. There they are trying to kill him in chapter 10. And you see this turn as you come into chapter 11, and it's definitely, no question, it's definitely a move on the part of the Holy Spirit as he stirs John's heart to record this. See, God the Father always guards the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. And it is here... In this account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, it's here you could say that we effectively behold a supernatural defiant miracle. A supernatural defiant miracle. It's almost as if God the Father says, Okay, so you don't want him. Okay, so you hated him. Okay, so you rejected him. That does not deter in any way my purpose to glorify him. I love it. Because here is the devil's attempts to discredit him throughout, to destroy him throughout. And it's almost just basically an open defiance on the part of God the Father to take the rejection, the hatred, and all of that from the preceding chapters, especially chapter 10, and to prove that that did not dim the glory of his son even one little tiny bit. And the glory of God is the reason for everything in creation. And he guards that glory in Jesus Christ. He created the world through Jesus Christ, the universe through Jesus Christ. John opens up his gospel with that truth. So that in guarding the glory of his son... And in creating everything for his glory, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In guarding the glory for his son, God then takes any rebel that refuses to give his son glory and he sends him away, he removes him from his presence forever. So that fallen angels are removed from the presence of God forever. Fallen men who hear the gospel as they did here and reject Christ, seek to eliminate him from their thinking and from their lives, they will be eliminated from the presence of God, cast into the bottomless pit of an eternal hell forever. God is jealous over the glory of his Son, you could say, with a holy jealousy. He guards the glory of his Son. That is why Hebrews ten thirty one says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God, to reject this God who has so guarded his glory from eternity past and casting the devil and his angels out of heaven when they rebelled. All the way down till now, even holding in chains in a bottomless pit right now, the worst of the demons, they're chained up right now, as other demons are free. This guarding of the glory of God, he takes it all so seriously that if... He comes to you and He approaches your life with the plowing of His Spirit in your heart, with the preaching of the Word of God that enlightens your mind to go with that work of God in your heart, that pre-salvation enlightenment that brings a man to the point where he can make a choice for Christ. If you reject Him, the sum of it all is it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so he guards the glory of his son and he puts his glory on display after all the rejection in chapter 11. So if you ask the question, why was Lazarus raised from the dead? Lazarus was raised from the dead for the glory of God. He was raised from the dead for the glory of God. Look at John eleven four again. When Jesus heard that he was sick, when he heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If you look at it, what you begin to realize is that the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is the greatest manifestation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ to this point. It's almost as if there's an unfolding 
In the beginning of the Gospel of John, you have uh, Jesus goes to the wedding, which is a wonderful sermon all by itself, and what he thinks of marriage. Jesus goes to the wedding. They run out of wine, and he makes wine out of water. From there, you find him after that in the Gospel of John. He heals the nobleman's son. Moving on from there, you come to the pool of Bethesda. And so you go on from there and you see him. He multiplies the loaves and the fishes. He walks on water. He heals the man born blind. But it's as if this is the climactic miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. If you know your Bible and you're sharp, you're going to say, but wait, wait, wait. This isn't the only incident of raising someone from the dead. That's right. I know that. He raised the widow's son at Nain from the dead. Bible says, looking at her, he had compassion on her. But that was in a funeral procession. Her son had just, just died. In the case of raising Jairus' daughter, she was still on her bed. She had just died. As glorious, and those miracles are recorded elsewhere, as glorious as those miracles are, these people had just died. But in the case of Lazarus, he had not just died when Jesus raises him from the dead. If you look at John eleven thirty nine, you get this. The old King James here is absolutely classic. It's one of those scriptures you read it, you never forget it for the rest of your life. Jesus finally arrives, and we'll study it next time, but he finally arrives. There's been a delay. And in 1139, Old King James, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Classic Old King. You know, sometimes there's just nothing better than the Old King James. By now he stinketh. For he hath been dead four days. Now the Jews did not embalm and go through the 70-day process of preserving the body that the Egyptians did. They wrapped them up and stuck them in the tomb. So after four days, by now he stinketh. The NIV renders it, Take away the stone, he said, But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. Terribly weak. Terribly weak. The New King James nails it pretty well. Take away the stone, Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. That's accurate. That's accurate. A stench. We reserve that, don't we? We don't use stinketh too often. But we do use stench, and we reserve it for the worst of odors, right? Bad odor, weak. Stench is accurate because dead four days by now, simply wrapped up, his body is decomposing. It's getting gooey. Stinketh is good, stench is accurate, really accurate. This is a sickening odor. It's a decomposing, rotting body of a dead man. Jesus says, roll away the stone. And his sister says, oh, don't, please, don't, don't. Spare us all. To have a Jairus' daughter who just died, to raise her from the dead, that's one thing. Body probably barely even cold, maybe even warm to the touch still. The freshly died son of the widow at Nain. But a gooey, decomposing, stinking body. You understand, this is the ultimate miracle. And in this miracle then, you see how stupendous it is because it's a creative act. If you have a decomposing body and you want to get the guy back into it, just imagine if you sent him back into it. Then tell him to come out. That'd be awful. It'd be like a monster movie. You know, Lazarus comes out and he runs around town terrorizing everyone. Besides the impracticality of it all. So the, the act is a creative act. Thus signifying the deity of Jesus Christ. He's got to create effectively a new body there. And he says, roll away the stone because it's not really resurrection. The sense of a resurrection body is when Jesus rose from the dead. The stone was rolled away to let the world in, not to let him out. This is resuscitation. This is bringing back a life in the same body. 
So it's a creative act that manifests as deity, and only God can create. Only God can give life. So in terms of putting the glory of His Son on display, here it is. This is deity. Only God can give life. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. And then He multiplied the bread and He fed them and He kept them alive. Jesus said in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. And then He gave light to the sightless eyes of a man who had been blind from the day he was born. And then He gave light to the eyes of the souls of those who believed on Him, including that man. Jesus here says in John 11.25, and I believe He whispered this into her ear, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Don't you understand? He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then he gave life to somebody who was dead, but not just dead, into a body that was already decomposing. There is no other explanation than that this is God here doing this, and so it manifests his deity. I had an interesting thought that struck me the other day. I was thinking about this, and I was driving along the freeway, and it just hit me out of nowhere. Having been a person who, before I came to Christ, I believed in reincarnation for a while. You know how you believe in stuff for a while. I believed in reincarnation, I researched it, and I studied the Hindu religion and all of that. The whole idea of reincarnation and all the other different explanations of where you go when you die. And I remember being 12 years old, unconverted, staring at the open casket of my dead grandfather at the funeral. And I'd never seen that before. And I remember I just came unhinged, totally unglued, and I went hysterical. Just went spinning all around the room in tears because I, I just couldn't deal with it and I didn't know where he had gone. Something hit me, and that was that here is an act, not only creative, not only to manifest his deity, but an act manifesting his lordship over the spirit of all men, each and every man, each and every woman. You know, all the world wonders, where does somebody go when they die? I mean, you bring a body into ER in the hospital, and they're having trouble. You have people that are out on the highway, and they're in a terrible car accident, and their heart stops. And the paramedics take those paddles out, and boom, they hit the chest. Boom! They hit it again. The body shakes. Sometimes that, that heart starts to beat again and the person begins to breathe and all of that. And they get in the oxygen and they shoot the adrenaline and everything and the person lives. Though their heart was stopped for a moment or two or whatever. But you come to this and you, you, you have something totally different. You come to this and you have a guy who's been dead four days, gone. They have even weighed bodies after the person dies and they're lighter when they die. And they have nothing to account for that. Except that the spirit leaves and it, something's gone. And you stare at an open casket at a body. Maybe sometimes they look better than they've looked in years, you know, because of the way they fix them up. And even still, you look at that. And once you've learned about all this and you're a Christian and you understand it all, you can stare at a body in an open casket. If it's a loved one, you know they're in heaven. You have every confidence. So you can stand there under the peace of the Holy Spirit and just marvel at this earthly tabernacle, this tent, Paul said, that he would soon put off for his body in the heavens. And you know, this is not my loved one. They moved out. But the world looks on and says, where do they move to? Where do they go? What happens? Are, are they a floating vibration in, in the cosmos? Are they floating through the cosmos waiting now to come back in reincarnation? And will they go out of that body and come back suddenly and hatch out of an egg and become a maggot and turn into a fly? The Hindus believe stuff like that. And the Hindus believe the really exalted ones are rats. They worship rats as gods. Isn't that something? I wouldn't want a rat for a god, would you? Neither do I ever want to come back as one. Never liked living on the streets. But anyway, everybody wonders, where do they go? You know what? The world can look on and they don't know for sure. But one thing's for sure, Jesus knows for sure. And that's the point. I don't know if you're a Christian today or not. Maybe you're thinking about it. Maybe you're seeking. Maybe you're wondering. Maybe you're just tagging along. Maybe you're just here because you don't even know why you're here. You just know you. something has to change. Maybe you believe Jesus is the Son of God, but you always have had a hard time dealing with the fact He is God. Maybe you believe that somehow you'll die and He'll negotiate. 
afterwards, if you've had this all messed up. The Bible is very clear he will not negotiate. The Bible is very clear he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And the Bible is demonstrating here he's God. And the Bible is demonstrating here he is the master of souls. He is the Lord of souls. That whatever else this tells us, this decomposing, dead, empty, beginning to be a massive goo, says to us, where did that spirit go? We don't know, but he knew. And he said, roll away the stone. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came hopping out, still bound in his grave clothes, and they had to unwind him and loose him. And what it says is, he knew. He knew right where his spirit was. Not only did he know where his spirit was, he called him by name. And not only did he call him by name, but he commanded him. And from wherever that spirit was, after death, long gone from that body, he commanded that spirit to come back into that body, and he did. And he fit the body, and he recreated it to make it fit for him to come back. Then he called him out, and he stood, and he lived, and people saw him. And he goes to dinner, and all of this, and he's so alive, the Jews tried to kill him. These guys are bent on murder, and any kind of proof. I mean, we know he's alive because the Jews are trying to kill him. So he's fully alive. Now what does that say to you? I'll tell you what it says to me. That however long it takes you to get to this, this is what it says to me. In Philippians 2.10 it says that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and that of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, those under the earth, every person that has died will in their spirit be taken and they will rise to stand before him. Every human being who's ever lived. Of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That's it. That's the point right here. Lord to the glory of who? God the Father. What is God the Father doing in John chapter 11? He's guarding the glory of His Son. He's making obvious the glory of His Son. Please see it here. Please give Him the glory now in your life. Please believe on Him as God now in your life. Please believe that He is who He says He is now in your life. Please give your heart to Him today, now in in your life. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for you in writing anywhere. Nowhere. Because you will stand before Him. And He does have full charge of your soul. And when He commands you to come forth and give account for your life, if you cannot... Stand before Him covered in His blood. He will call you forth to stand before Him as your judge. And the verdict is already set. And so you see Him here for who He is, God, in this incredible miracle that He does. God very jealously guards the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. The positioning of this miracle is critical because it vindicates all the claims of Jesus Christ as to his deity. One other thing, understanding now that he's withdrawn from public ministry, he's turned to minister to his close friends and disciples in the remainder of the time in the gospel. This really is a picture. It points now, everything points now to his cross, his death, and his resurrection. So he says, now beginning all to move in that direction. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? Then he does the miracle. And so we come to this monumental positioning of John chapter 11. I'll tell you that the positioning, just that alone is enough for me to think about for the next few months. Let's go to the preparation, the next thing here. The preparation, we find this in verses 1 through 16. On the heels of everything we've just said and as a thought to take us where we're going, I want to read you a prayer from uh, the Norwegian theologian Ole Halsby. This is a tremendous prayer. It is the prayer of a truly mature Christian who truly understands the wisdom of God in our life. The prayer goes like this, Lord... Lord, if it will be to your glory, heal suddenly. But, Lord, if it will glorify you more, heal gradually. However, Lord, if it will glorify you even more, 
Then may your servant be sick for a while. And then the ultimate. Lord, if it will glorify your name still even more, take your servant to yourself in heaven. I wonder if you can pray that prayer today. I wonder if I can pray that prayer today. Your will be done, Lord. Lord, I see here on the pages of Scripture, having only looked at what we have so far, just to look at verse 4, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. This isn't just about a man dying. It's about teaching all kinds of truth about the glory of God and Jesus Christ and who He is and God's will. And as we come into this whole thing of preparation and we come to focus on Lazarus, who is this critical man in so many ways and this critical illness in front of us that takes him to the point of death, it really should cause all of us to understand sickness is often allowed for God's glory and what He does with it is to use it in such a way as to gain His highest glory. And I always pray, Lord, heal suddenly. Lord, heal now. And I love it when He does. But I'm also ready to receive His plan in whatever way He wants to answer the prayer. So we come to Lazarus. There's four sets of characters here to prepare us. There is, first of all, here the critical man, and that is Lazarus. Verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. The town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This account of Jesus and his resurrection power is all about dealing with this man and his sickness. Lazarus happens to be the guy that he uses. Isn't it great to be used by the Lord? It's so great to be used by the Lord. This is a radical way to be used by the Lord, isn't it? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to get sick and die. Don't worry, I will show up. <laughs> he was used of the Lord. That's the whole point. Lazarus is anything special in that sense. What is special is what Jesus did. Now here then, on the pages of Scripture, is a man sick for the glory of God. I've already said it in so many ways. I want to say it plainly, lest you miss it. Here is a man sick for the glory of God. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And so you look at this, and you have to take that. If you say, well, what could I do with that? How could I apply that? I would say one thing you could do is turn to all the false teachers in the Word of Faith movement. Turn to anybody who's been deceived by them. And the problem is, is for those earnest, seeking hearts that love Jesus, they eventually, though they may be entrapped in that heresy, they eventually are led by the Spirit of God out of it. But what God does is He will lead them out of that into the arms of those who understand the truth in the Bible without tampering with it. If you understand, in front of us is a man sick for the glory of God then you understand this is the final word against the word of faith teachers who teach you that it is not God's will for you to be sick. And therefore, if you are, you just don't have enough faith. So if you just speak your faith, and you just have enough faith, then you can be healed and you will be. And if you're not, then you just didn't have enough faith. Here is a man sick for the glory of God. It's God's will that he be sick because God's doing awesome things here. To me, that's the final word on it. I don't need to hear anymore. I don't need to argue all day long. It's in my Bible. It's clear. It's plain. Into the issue. I'm not going to stay awake nights about it. I'm not going to run from counselor to counselor to counselor. What is your opinion? So-and-so said this. Such-and-such preacher said this. This guy gave me his opinion. She said that. I'm not going to do any of that. It's in my Bible right here. Sick for the glory of God. Fine. Then take your false doctrine somewhere else because these ears will not listen to it. And you should be able to turn to those that have been trapped in this. And don't be down on them if they don't get over it overnight because they won't. Truth and error go very deep together and it's hard to get that out. Sometimes it takes years because deception has the devil shoving behind it. It's a supernatural thing as well as just deception. But this is the liberating word, the truth that makes you free. Lazarus, you look at this guy's name. Interesting name, huh? I don't think I've ever met anybody named Lazarus. But it actually is an old Hebrew name. 
It comes from an old Hebrew name, Eliezer. It's interesting, though, what his name means. It means one whom God helps. And what a great name for this guy. He got all the help he could ever get, being raised from the dead after four days. If you've read your Bible and you're wondering, is this the same Lazarus that was the beggar in Luke, who sat at the door of the rich man, who went into Abraham's bosom when he died? The answer is no. It's a derivative of the old Hebrew name Eliezer, and it is a very common name. Very common. It's almost as common as having the last name Smith in our day. So, a lot of people everywhere named Lazarus. So what he does here is he gives us his address. He wants us to know which Lazarus. It's very interesting how he does this. And he wants us to know which one. So he says in in verse 1, Now there was a certain man who was sick named Lazarus, notice, of Bethany. But there is a problem because there was another Bethany, Bethabra, which was somewhere down around Jericho where Jesus had just gone to get rest where John had been baptizing. There's an oasis down there, right down there in the middle of the desert. So to distinguish from that, which Lazarus? They're everywhere. The one from Bethany. Which Bethany? The one of the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So he gives effectively the address. Now... To me, there is something wonderful about this. Because that place, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, which sits right across a little tiny valley from the eastern gate of Jerusalem, that little insignificant hamlet, just a tiny village, just a tiny gathering of people, was chosen by God Almighty as He scanned the earth for the greatest miracle of Jesus. He chose a nowhere place. A nothing place. An insignificant place. And what encouragement that breathes into my heart. Lord, you chose to do this in a nothing place. Can you turn there to 1 Corinthians 1.27? We quote a bit of it all the time, but I think we leave a lot of it out in our thinking and miss out, therefore, on a lot of its enrichment. 1 Corinthians 1.27.28 We often quote this and miss so much of the richness. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Here you see these erudite religious leaders in their pomposity up on the Temple Mount. You have Mount of Olives. Behind that is this little dinky neighborhood, Bethany. And here God bypasses these guys and goes right over the mount to this little tiny foolish, if I could use that term, little place, And he does this huge miracle. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen, notice, the weak things. There's more in this verse than just the foolish things. The weak things is also here. To put to shame the things that are mighty. I love that. Now I'm in the verse. I'm in the verse. And so are you now. God has chosen to use the weak things. Now you're in the verse. To confound the mighty Now you're filled with the power of God standing against the power of Satan and God works his plan and works his victories and he's done it in you, weak and foolish. And the base things, if Bethany was anything, it was base. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not. I love that. I'm yours, Lord, everything I got, everything I am and everything I'm not. I'm yours, Lord, completely yours. I just love this verse because I'm all through here. And this is just exactly what he did with this little place, Bethany. The spot he chose to put his glory on display was completely insignificant. And you may feel that way. But the spot he has chosen to dwell by his Holy Spirit is your heart. The place he has chosen to manifest his glory now is not Bethany so much as your heart. Weak, maybe. Despised, maybe. Insignificant, maybe foolish, maybe, but it's still the spot he has chosen. So when I read this, it just breathes wonderful encouragement to my heart. Back to John chapter 11, now marching to verse 2. It was Mary, that Mary, because there was Marys. I mean, there's four Marys that are in, in this little, everybody's named Mary. Lazarus everywhere, Mary everywhere. It must have got confusing. That Mary, what Mary, that Mary. The one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil. Oh, what a way to be described. Who anointed the Lord with fragrant... The one who loved the Lord so much. Anointed him with fragrant oil, John 11, 2, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. 
That's the one. That's the Lazarus. That's the Bethany. That's the Mary. That's the one. And though John has not talked about this incident yet, the other Gospels written years before had already done so in detail. He can refer to well-known knowledge, and then he's going to unfold his viewpoint, his side of it in chapter 12. But what a wonderful way to be described by the Lord. That one that anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, Bethany, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you realize Jesus did not have a house? Once he went into his public ministry, he did not have his own home. He said, if you're going to follow me, get ready to move around because of the nature of my ministry. So, this is as close to a home as Jesus ever had in his public ministry, this little place in Bethany. And it is these three people that give him effectively the closest thing to a home during this time in his life. In verse 3, it says, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. What a way to put it. You, you gather it all together, and what you see at this point is this. These three people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're different than the twelve. It's like the twelve are official. These are his personal friends. We see Jesus with multitudes everywhere he goes. It's a nerve-wracking life in that sense. But he, he was there full of love to do it. And you see these official ones he's training. These are in their own category. They are his personal friends. Sovereignly assigned to him by God. It seems to me, and you see it other places in the Bible and you see it in life, God seems to sovereignly appoint these kind of people to those that serve him in his work. It's something God does. And it's the kind of thing that you shouldn't critically judge those people. It's the kind of a thing that you shouldn't even critically envy them. Because it's not the kind of a thing that you can just politically work your way into. And if you do that, God will work you out. This is something God does. Can you imagine how many people in the time of Jesus wanted to be his pal? Think of it. So many, I'm sure. Even among the twelve. Peter, James, John, and on it goes and you have... Three sets of four. You have these divisions, and the closest ones are Peter, James, and John. Andrew's on the fringe of that one group, and there are then the other groups, two other groups. You can't design this yourself. God does it. I'm speaking very practical. This is what he does. I've seen it endlessly around the world. He calls these people to labor by the side of those that labor in his vineyard. On all different levels, he does this. But I've seen it. Those that become addicted to the ministry of the saints, he will call those to come alongside and be their, be their haven of rest effectively, as it were. Bethany and these three friends was a haven of rest for Jesus as over against the nightmare of Jerusalem. And all the hard work that had to be done. And all the criticism and all the rejection and all the constant sorrows. So here are these personal friends. You see this in the life of Paul when uh, he's writing... Uh, in the last part of his writing, last few days of his life to Timothy, he says, Demas has forsaken me for the love of this present world. So-and-so went here, so-and-so went there. And he says, only Luke is with me. What was Luke in the life of Paul? Exactly what we're talking about here. A personal friend. For a man who's getting imprisoned all the time, beaten all the time, shipwrecked all the time, malaria. He needed a personal doctor, which Luke was. And Luke gave up probably a very lucrative practice as a doctor. It took you a while, you got it. He gave up a wonderful life as a doctor to be this man's friend. You see him there. Only Luke is with me. A statement. People come, people go. This man's his friend. He's still there. So as close to home as he ever had was this house in Bethany, these friends. And one, just, one more quick word on that. Here's a model for all those who would ever house missionaries. To me, it's so beautiful. You know, when missionaries go to the field and they come back for a furlough, they're typically exhausted in just endless ways that those of us that don't do that will never know. But one of the things we can do that is a tremendous blessing is to give them a haven of rest at the time in their life when they need it most. 
and generally they need medical attention and so on, maybe you've never done that or never considered it, never given it a moment's thought, it is a model here for one of the most wonderful ministries in all of life. And it was temporary for them, didn't last that long. Jesus was here and then gone. But their home was a house for this missionary, Jesus Christ, and it's a model for all that would ever do that. Paul writes to uh, Philemon in verse 22 of Philemon, he says, prepare a guest room for me, because I'm coming. That was a ministry in the life of Philemon to Paul. The critical man, we come to the concerned sisters, they wanted Jesus there when their brother got sick. They sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They'd seen him heal so many people that he didn't know. Now the one he loves, his personal friend is sick. They want him there. But I love their approach. They send a message. And what they do is, in the message, they brought a surrender of love. They did not come demanding. Verse 3, Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. There are no orders here. Lord, this is what he's got, and this is what we want you to do, and please do it now on this timetable. Simply, he's sick. Not even his name. The one whom you love. In other words, oh, Lazarus. Just, he'll know. You just tell him that, he'll know. You know how we do that? You just tell him this, you may not understand this. You just tell him this, he'll know. She'll know. I just love the approach. He whom you love is sick. How do you talk to God in a severe time of need? Do you just come in a surrender of love? Lord, here I am. Here's the situation. Lord, you know what to do. I trust in you. Because whether it's you or there's someone else you're interceding for, Lord, this is the person you love. I love it because we so often come with our well-designed plan. We've got our timetable. And we come and we give God our plan. Lord, this is the way I see it. And Lord, you're going to have to do this now. And this and this and this. Now, Lord, and if you don't. Have you ever heard yourself saying that to God? And if you don't. Ooh. God leans over and says, remind me to faint when I get home. Look who knows so much. And if you don't. Well, they don't do that. They just say, Lord, the one you love is sick. See, God's work, what I like about this is not only that they just come in this beautiful surrender. They're not demanding, but... God's work in my life is based on His love for me, not my love for Him. Notice they don't come and say, Lord, the one who loves you so much, He loves you so much, what are you going to do for Him? They don't do that, that's bribery. They come and they say, Lord, the one you love. Because you love Him, we know you'll do the best. I thank God His work in my life is based on His love for me. Lord, here I am, the one you love. Whatever you want to do. Lord, I'm praying for the one you love. Look, behold, Lord, she's suffering. Whatever you want to do, he's suffering, Lord. And to leave it in the hands of God because, you see, if it depended on my love for him, then nothing would ever get done. It's so inconsistent. But because it depends on his love, which is so consistent and so lofty, I have loved you with an everlasting love, he has said, because it sweeps in his plan and thoughts in eternity past for you, and it sweeps in his plan and thoughts in eternity future for you. Thus, what he chooses to do in time for you is going to be the wisest, best possible thing. Let us come to God in these kind of terms and believing in his love for us that he will operate on the basis of his love. They wanted him there. They brought a surrender of love and they received from him a delay. Isn't that something? I mean, you can't come to him any better than that. Lord, he's dying. Thanks for the message. Guys, let's get back to work. Can you imagine how stumbled the disciples were? Talk about a God of love. Talk about a Messiah of love. Oh, he's love all right. These are his closest friends. He just got a note. I saw the note. I read it myself. When he wasn't looking, he was eating. I peeked at it. It says he's sick unto death. And look at him. He goes on. He's praying over there. He's doing nothing. Do you realize how much time it's going to take to get there? How could a Messiah let his friend die? You can just see this going on. And so he delays. When Jesus heard that, 
He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, and he loved her sister, and he loved Lazarus. The Holy Spirit puts that there. Then he puts this through John. So, because he loved them. So, because he loved them. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was, and then the journey too. So, you've got this delay. My, my, my. How difficult that must have been for the disciples. And how difficult must have been for those on the other side. So we come to the cringing disciples. And this is critical. Now what you begin to see. John eleven seven. Then after this. So he waits and they're already in a mood about it. And they're already no doubt talking to each other about it. So he's got a weird vibe on the team. Now he says to them. Verse 7. After this he said to his disciples. Let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to kill you, to stone you there. You're going there? No, now that I think about it, forget the note. They've tried to kill him if we go with them, guys. You ever thought about what's going to happen to us? Those rocks start flying, we're next to him. Think about it. And so, sometimes we are told to do things we don't agree with. He told them, let's go to Jerusalem again. He's telling them the Father's plan. Instead of saying, Lord, fine, fine. You know what you're doing. We've been with you for years. We, we trust you. You know what's right. If anything we've learned in the last few years, this is what we've learned. Fine. You want to go to Judea? You want to walk into the... De fine. Instead, they pull this rabbi thing on him. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi. What does it mean? Teacher. Teacher. Uh, we've moved you now into the teacher category. We're not so sure about leader. Teacher, uh, lately they sought to kill you there. You're going there? You? They say we. You? Oh, so you're going back there now. Teacher. See, now they want him to be their teacher. They don't want him to be their leader because they don't want to go there. Very interesting. To me, it's a major lesson. They just fail to realize a life principle, which is this. He who has the light to feed you has the light to lead you. To me, that is so basic. It just makes so much sense. This man has changed their whole life. His wisdom has changed their whole life. His light has changed the whole course of their life. Surely he has enough light to lead them. He's already been doing it, and they haven't seen it. Now that's teacher. Teach us, but don't lead us. That is the folly of the Christian life. He answered and he said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he has the light of the world. If someone walks in the night, however, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He says, Walks in the day. He's saying, Don't you understand? I am making this decision and I am leading you this way based on the blazing light of the will of my Father. I do always those things that please the Father. Do you think I have enough light to make this decision and lead you the right way? He's teaching him a personal lesson. He who has the light to feed you has the light to lead you. They were sometimes told to do things they didn't agree with, and they sometimes responded in a weird way. You want to see it? Just jump down to verse 16. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, I guess he had a twin. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Okay, everybody, let's go so we can die with him. Don't you think that's strange? It only confirms everything I said already. He gets the note. They think he's weird because he doesn't respond immediately. When he does respond, he says, let's go. They say, go, you're going, you. It's teacher, it's not leader. And then Thomas hauls off, says, fine, all right, we'll go. And we'll die. Cool. So Thomas is really inspiring the team at that point. He is just a terrific benefit to the team. Let's go and let's die. Come on. Fine. But you see, that's all in the face of the confident Savior. Here's where we in. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. The disciples said, these guys are so clueless. That's what the Bible ought to say here. But it says, the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. You know, Lord, it's a good thing to sleep when you're sick. However... Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. You know, people pick and choose in messages. They do. They listen selectively. Jesus says plainly, read my lips. Watch me. Everybody, wake up, look this way. Watch me. Lazarus is dead, 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 lifeless, dead. 
He died. He's not asleep. He's dead. You think he means he's dead? I can see him after the message. Somebody comes up and says, Lord, you know the thing you said about dead? Did you mean dead? People do that all the time. It's amazing. Jesus said, blazing, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad. Now we know he's weird. I'm glad. Let's get out of here. We're going to die if we go. We can't win anymore. I am glad. But I love this. For your sakes. But I was not there. Why? You may believe. All I've ever done is tried to help your faith, teach you, lead you, feed you in such a way that you would have increasing faith. And I'm glad he's dead already because I am going to do something that is going to put a shot on the arm of your faith that's going to send you over the top and you're going to have a faith in me and in God that you have never held as your own before. Come on, let's go. You're not going to die because my time has not yet come. How clear do we have to make this? Come on, this is going to be exciting. I'm glad for your sakes. Nevertheless, let's go. And at the back of the line is Thomas grabbing a couple of guys. Let's go and die with him. What a scene. These guys. So where do we end? That's where we end right now. And what have we learned? If we've learned nothing else, we have learned for sure that sometimes sickness is for God's glory. That helps me so much. You know why? Because I get sick a lot more than I used to. And I believe sometimes it is for His glory, and I know it has been. Here's even the harder thing, and we'll get into the, into the realities and difficulties of death next time. Do not miss it and bring those that need to hear it. Sometimes death is for God's glory. God would like it every time to be. But what I'm talking about specifically is sometimes people get sick and they die and God doesn't heal them and He had and has a reason for His glory. And the final thing as we end is that our Lord's delays, please hear this, our Lord's delays are never a manifestation of His lack of love for us, but rather the very exact opposite the very exact opposite now you see Lazarus gasping for air and he's dying where is Jesus and he surveys the scene and he dies you see his sister watch him slip away and he dies you see the disciples back with the note you see the whole scene but look at them when he's done think Lazarus was glad he died afterwards I can see him at the first dinner. You know what, guys? You cannot believe how good this meal tastes. This is the best pita bread I've ever had in my life, and you all look so good. You know, I missed you. Never knew I liked you so much. Never noticed that you're balding there either, and that you have curly hair, and you have that cute nose. My, I love being alive. You get the point, don't you? The delays that we think are a manifestation of the lack of His love are exactly the opposite. He does all things well in His time. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for what is here before us. Oh God, return this again and again and again to our hearts. There's so much to meditate on, to contemplate on. So much of Your love here. So much of Your wisdom here. So many areas here in which each one of us can grow. Lord Jesus, Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake and give us that grace to follow after you and we will give you the glory as we discover the adventure of the life of faith and the faithfulness of an all-wise, all-loving God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.